Welcome to Chasing Hermes, the pursuit of Mercury, with your hosts, Sean and Jason. Hi, and welcome to this week's episode of Chasing Hermes. I'm Sean. And I'm Jason. Hi, Sean. How are you doing? I'm doing well, Jason. How are you? Awesome. You know, we've, uh, we've done a few shows now, and we've been exploring the hermetic tradition, the Western mysteries, and we've stated that our ultimate goal is the pursuit of Mercury, the pursuit of all things hermetic, but we haven't truly addressed um, in a satisfactory way, perhaps, this figure of Hermes, what some call Hermes Trismagistus. And, you know, as many of our listeners may know, uh, this hermetic tradition really began to uh, become awakened in a renewed interest back in the Renaissance. And I believe many of us have the questions of what was it that spawned this renewal of interest? We know there are many texts, many documents in the historical perspective of Hermeticism. So my question to you, Jason, is what spawned this renewed interest in Hermeticism during the Renaissance? Well, let's spill back the tape to 1460 and we're in Florence, Italy. A few manuscripts show up through the means of a monk traveling from Macedonia and what he has is the Corpus Hermeticum, which is the body of knowledge attributed to Hermes. They had originally been stored in Constantinople to be saved when the Roman Empire fell. Hmm. But Constantinople was taken over by the Turks, and they had to take these documents and save them. They were too valuable. So this Florentine monk, Leonardo of Postoia, got a hold of these, uh, got a hold of these documents, these manuscripts, and they were believed to have once been part of the Great Library of Alexandria. Oh, right. But but they, but the West had not seen these documents since the 6th century AD. How many documents were there? Well, there were about 14 to 18 tracts. It depends. I see. Um, originally, I think 14 were found, but later documents showed up, which were then added into what is now known as the corpus. And um, these manuscripts were given to a man named Marsilio Ficino, who was at the time working at um, the Medici court in Florence. Uh, he was translating the philosophers, the great philosophers Plato and Socrates, and he had made it about halfway through when his master, uh, Cosimo de' Medici, gave him these documents and said, you have to work on these because this is the real stuff. This is the, this is the shit, so to speak. <laughs> oh, wow, that's interesting. I wonder, did, did he know about these documents before they landed on his lap? Well, scholars knew about them because they had read about these documents and they had read about this person, Hermes, in, for example, some of the church fathers' early writings. I see. Um, St. Augustine, for example, writes about it, and he was one of the people who believed that Hermes was a contemporary of Moses. Right. That is fascinating. So he, he knew of these documents, and then he finds himself one day sitting in front of these documents that that have been basically legend up until that point. But he can't read them. But he can't read them. So he drops everything that he's doing. Well, Cosimo de' Medici wants to read these documents before he dies. And he knows he only has a few years to live. So he says, you know what, Ficino, 
Plato and Socrates, they can all wait because this is what I really want to read now. <laughs> so I'm, I'm sure Ficino found these documents interesting, but I'm pretty sure he was pretty miffed about not getting to finish his, his work on Plato right. and Socrates. Well, that being said, these, these texts were not very long. So afterwards, um, I think he spent about a year or two on this. And afterwards, he picked up the work on, on Plato and the uh, Socrates again. Which had not been translated up until that point. Right, right. This then really highlights the importance of the Corpus Hermeticum. When you weigh it against Plato and Socrates. Right. Well, what you have to understand is that Cosimo de' Medici, the, the prince, he believed that it was Hermes who had taught Plato and Socrates, that he was oh. the founder of philosophy. Right, right. So then it would stand to reason that they would place a higher importance on them. That's right. That's right. Interesting. Okay. So when they found this, they believed that this stuff was as old as, as any of the philosophies out there, that Plato and Socrates would both have taken their thoughts out of this tradition, out of this hermetic mm. tradition. And, um, I mean, there is some truth to that in the sense that these are texts that originated in Egypt. Um, right. And Egypt was the place where all of the great philosophers would have gone to study. Sort of the, the, the proto or early universities would have been yeah. in Alexandria and other places in Egypt. Mm -hmm. And that's where these people would have gone to study. But it's probably not true that um, these texts, at least, were uh, foundational to the, the, the great philosophers. Rather, it's an amalgamation of, of their work, and it's much, much later. Sure. So the traditions may have a common root, even though they were never codified into the, the writings that we're familiar with um, in any sort of linear fashion. Well, when the Protestants came around after the Reformation, they didn't really accept the authenticity of the Corpus Hermeticum, and they certainly didn't believe that it was older than uh, Jesus Christ. So in 1614, in Geneva, there was a priest called Isaac Casabon who used textual analysis to prove that the Corpus Hermeticum could not be dated earlier than about 100 AD, possibly as late as 300 AD. So this was, for, for a very, very long time, this was the common knowledge, this was the common understanding. Um, but then in 1945, the Nag Hammadi Library was uh, found, and it actually contains better versions of some of these texts written in Coptic. And, oh, wow. Yeah. So, and these manuscripts were buried in the latter half of the 4th century. Um, but a lot of the Nag Hammadi texts are believed to be much older than that. Yeah. So the current theory is that these texts were edited and written down sometime maybe 1st or 2nd century AD, but that they could contain ideas and traditions that are much older. And that's fascinating because there's a lot of uh, debate that goes on in the scholarly circles um, concerning the dates of the Hermetic tradition and, and you know, when it meets up with other traditions and religions and cultures. But the fact is, is we just don't know where the origins of the of this school of thought truly began. Because even though it was written down at certain points in history, uh, these ideas could have been floating around, say, in ancient Egypt, you know, hundreds and hundreds of years prior to when these texts that we have were written down. But what I'm interested in now is 
you know, what did the Renaissance philosophers believe? How old did they think that these writings were? That is the real question. Not necessarily what are the facts surrounding uh, the Hermetic tradition, but rather what is believed around it, yeah. what is believed about it in each incarnation. Because it seems like it, there is a flurry of Hermeticism uh, arising in the Renaissance. And what they believe is that, that this is the true tradition, and that's how they treat it. And that's how they, in their turn, develop the tradition into the Hermeticism that we know today. Right. So where was this Corpus Hermeticum written? The most probable place where uh, it originated was in Alexandria. Um, if you remember, Alexander the Great conquered Egypt, mm-hmm. and he instigated his own um, line of pharaohs called the Ptolemaic dynasty. And this was, at the time, this was really the center for Greek scholarship, like you mentioned earlier. Mm-hmm. And um, if we are to assume now that the Corpus Hermeticum would have been written, composed in the 1st or 2nd century AD, um, it would actually have been, Alexander would actually have been under Roman rule. So there was this very interesting mix of Greek, Egyptian, Roman, and Jewish cultures, and, and other pagan cultures. And um, there it would have been this great amalgamate or melting pot of different religions and traditions and philosophical ideas. And it would have been a really bustling place um, intellectually. Right, and there had to be a, a great number of, of thinkers, philosophers, theologians who, having been dealing with this uh, intermixture of culture, was also... Uh, open to the the ideas of the common points, sort of the first comparative religious studies of the day. Yeah, I mean, you can imagine all these cultures coming together and having to exist within the same city walls. You must have some sort of response as to how do we all get along? How do we, you know, what are the common elements to our religions? Mm-hmm. I'm, I don't think that's too far of a stretch. Um, that being said, it's probable that the persons, the persons, because it's most likely several different authors who, who compose these texts, but it's probable that some of these at least were considering themselves to be Egyptian first and foremost, and that the Romans and Greeks were invading forces that they were occupying in the Egyptian land. Mm, okay, that's interesting. So now we know a little bit about where the text came from, but... Obviously, for the Renaissance philosophers um, to think of them so highly, with such great esteem, it, it's actually the content of these uh, texts that must be important. So, what exactly is in them? What great mysteries are revealed in this collection of texts? The texts really take the form of isolated fairly short conversations or discourses or dialogues between a teacher and a disciple. But who is the teacher and who's the disciple, it's not always the same. So you've got these four characters, basically. Um, the very first chapter or, or book is a dialogue between Hermes, a person, not necessarily the god Hermes, but a person mm. um, who has a vision of Pymander. Pymander is sort of his initiator, the divine as revealed to Hermes. I see. So Pymander could be said to mean the shepherd of men, 
Um, what it could also be a derivative of the, of the Egyptian word for knowledge of Ray. Mm, knowledge right. of Ray. He could be seen as the noose of the supreme god. The okay. mind of the supreme god? That's right. I see. Okay, so you have Hermes and you have Pymander. You can, you can sort of see Hermes as a person who completes the work. Okay, He obtains this knowledge and he teaches it to his student, who is Asclepius. Mm-hmm. Asclepius is a healer, um, and some authors have identified Asclepius with the Egyptian Imhotep, mm. or perhaps his son. But this is all speculation. They're all characters. Sure. Asclepius, in turn, has a son called Tat, who he also uh, teaches. But it's also important to note that these books are all pseudoepigrapha, which is to say that you could almost make the analogy of saying, I was so inspired by Pablo Picasso when I made this painting that I signed it Picasso because he was my muse. Mm-hmm. Okay, But they didn't see it as forgery, and this was extremely common to do in antiquity. I see. So now we know a little bit about the characters. Uh, tell us a little bit more about, about the contents. What, what are the teachers teaching their students in these texts? Well, the Corpus Hermeticum really is a philosophical text. You might say that it's the philosophical foundation for the entire hermetic style of magic and worldview. I see. Are there any hints of the magic in the text? Sure, there are. Interesting. But most of all, I would say that it is the context in which magic works and in which magic is almost necessary. So would you say that it provides a worldview and a model of the world, a relationship between man and the divine that enables one to perform magical acts? Some of the main points in the Corpus Hermeticum are that the reader is to gain the knowledge of how to be saved from the fluctuation of nature and the corruption that we experience in material life. Oh, okay. Sort of the material inclinations, the lower dross of the material world? That's right. And to do that, you must develop a, a pure vision, a pure perception. And therein lies the key in that in order to be able to affect the world, you must see it for what it is, and you must see yourself for what you are. The deeper we can understand ourselves, the higher we can elevate to that mind of God, that mind of the divine, the more capable we become at affecting the world around us. That's right. But you must realize that the material world is only the visible manifestation that proves the existence of much greater powers. Ah. And these powers are invisible to the eye, to the human eye, but they are perceivable by the mind that has developed this pure vision of perception. So how did they view these powers? Um, one of the ways that man must be purified is through initiation into these seven spheres, and each one corresponding to the classical planets. Mm. And um, that's right there in the very first chapter of Corpus Medicum, also called the Pymander, because this is Pymander now talking to Hermes and providing his path of initiation into the higher spheres. Oh, wow. So they go one by one through these spheres in order to purify the soul. Exactly. So... Pymanders speaks to Hermes and he says, Thus a man starts to rise up through the harmony of the cosmos. To the first plane, he surrenders the activity of growth and diminution. Okay, so that's, there's again the, the fluctuation, the reflux and reflux of nature. Okay. So, can you think of which planet that might correspond to? 
I would say the moon. Yeah, I'd I'd say so too. It doesn't explicitly <laughs> say, but oh, if you okay. just if you just map these out, I th- it's it's pretty clear. To the second, the means of evil trickery now being inactive. Mm. Evil trickery. Mercury. Mercury. To the third, covetous deceit, also uh, now inactive. Venus. Uh huh. To the fourth, the eminence pertaining to a ruler being now without avarice. Ah, uh, the sun. The sun, the solar king, the ruler. To the fifth impious daring and reckless audacity ah definitely uh mars and to the sixth evil impulses for wealth all of these now being inactive ah jupiter wealth and abundance that's right and to the seventh plane the falsehood which waits in ambush ah saturn that's interesting and they're given in the same order that we refer to them today they're basically given in the order of the time they take to traverse the sky oh okay that makes sense then so these seven spheres must be transcended and on each sphere you must give up a sacrifice you must purify yourself right and once you've purified yourself on these seven visible spheres you can enter into the eighth and the ninth sphere. Ooh, the eighth and the ninth. Ah, yeah. Which hint then at something even greater than what we can see with the naked eye. You know, I find this very interesting because this then later in the later alchemists, they will use this formula. And it's interesting that it originates here in the Corpus Hermeticum. They use this formula where they view these seven spheres or the seven planets as the powers of the metals. Right. So in man and in the world, the rays of these spheres are captured and show their influence through the seven metals of the ancient world. And it's through the purification of these metals within us, within our soul, that then allows us to transmute those metals into the philosopher's stone. Right. Some alchemists list seven mm-hmm. stages of purification. Some list twelve. And we've just seen or seven planes of existence where you must purify yourself. Chapter 13 of the Corpus Hermeticum lists 12 causes of ignorance. These are called agnosis, mm-hmm. right? So they're, they're basically non-knowledge. They're a little bit similar to what you and I might call the material inclination. And these are keeping man from his gnosis or his knowledge of who he truly is. Oh, so would you say then that the later alchemists who devised their, their seven or their twelve or however many stages of alchemy, um, stages of purification, it seems as though they were trying to address each of these spheres or each of these influences uh, from these earlier hermetic texts? Alchemy has a philosophical foundation. That goes back as far as the birth of Christ. Mm. Speaking of Christ, you don't see any Jewish or Christian references in the Corpus Hermeticum. You don't have this great idea of, of the redemptive God who comes into the flesh or anything like that. You don't, you don't have the God of the Old Testament mm. or the New. Wow. You also don't have any pagan gods, really. They're not referred to at all. So the text really reads more like a Gnostic text in that it talks primarily about man's search for the divine. Um, that doesn't mean that it's necessarily Gnostic in nature, although there are, are some elements of it. Mm-hmm. There were Gnostics in the area of Alexandria at the time it was written, um, so it's certainly possible they drew on this tradition. Just as it was influenced by many of the other cultures and religions, uh, it's clear that there was 
a good dose of Gnostic influence as well. Absolutely. There are also no parables. Um, there are no miracles. There's no coercion to convert into a particular belief system. Hmm. And ultimately, there is no master other than yourself. Which would then implicate, once again, the great beginning of the theosis or the divinization of the self comes through the adage, know thyself. Yeah. So can you tell us a little bit more about then the differences between the hermetic view of God, the hermetic view of the divine, the all, the one, and the the more traditional religious views, perhaps from the older New Testament? Well, the Corpus Hermeticum gives in one part a sort of a Genesis narrative in that God creates the world and God creates man and there is a fall of sorts. Um, but before God creates nature, he basically creates a second God, a God of the creation, a God which belongs to creation. And um, he's sometimes called the son of God, but this shouldn't really be um, confused with the Christian concept of the son of God. Mm. Now, some might call a demiurge, and a lot of people have a very negative idea about the demiurge in that he is the devil. But that doesn't seem to be the case here. So this second God of creation is not a jealous God. He's not a God who hates man or anything like that. Um, he's basically just administering the wishes of the greater God, the supreme God. Mm, okay. Adam, man, in Corpus Hermeticum, is in the image of God. But what's even more is that he is himself a divine being. He is even called a brother of, of this second God uh, of the Demiurge. Hmm. So why does man fall? Well, it's not because he is tempted, but rather because he loves nature so much. He looks into the waters, primordial waters, and he sees his own reflection. And nature recognizes his powers and the powers of these seven principles or the seven spheres in him hmm. and they both fall in love with each other and they unite in a body oh that is interesting so it's sort of the the great alchemical wedding in a way if you wish yes hmm. but then man becomes unaware he forgets about his divine heritage this reminds me of the the mythology of of Narcissus who who's gazing into the pool, sees his own reflection, and, and falls in. Although it's from a slightly more elevated perspective, it almost has many of the same elements. Yeah, yeah. It's the same, it's the same sort of story, isn't it? But here, mm -hmm. really, it's, it's, there is this irresistible attraction between man and nature. Yeah. And this, this love of nature carries on throughout all of the Hermetic tradition, even through the Renaissance, where they view nature as enacting the will of God, and that through nature and through the processes of nature can be achieved perfection. Yeah, and again, this is about man being a microcosm of the greater macrocosm around him. And by analyzing himself, he can understand the nature of nature. And by analyzing nature, he can understand the nature of himself. So there is a kind of Genesis narrative in the Corpus Humedicum. Mm -hmm. Another chapter, chapter 13, is called The Secret Discourse. Um, and it's kind of like a Sermon on the Mount because it's given on a hill or a mountain. And um, it's, a, uh, it's a dialogue between Hermes and Tat. And Tat asks Hermes, what kind of 
womb or from what kind of seed is man reborn? Hmm. And Hermes then enters into a whole discourse on the regeneration or the rebirth or the awakening of man, if you will. So what does Hermes say about that then? Hermes says that a regenerated man is born from spiritual wisdom in the womb of silence and the seed of truth and the supreme good. And what he's basically painting is a picture of, of a man who receives the seed of God and in silence gestates into a new person. Mm. And then he says of this new reborn person that he is of a different kind. He is a son of God and he is himself God. In all, he is the all composed of all powers. So that is to say that a person who has gone through this experience and has been reborn is a person who has realized his own divine nature. Oh, wow. It's clear then why Medici put so much emphasis on this towards the end of his life. If he truly believed this process of salvation that was available to him through this text, uh, it seems obvious why he would have seen it with such great esteem. Yeah. But the question is how much of a chance he stood to do this, because to be reborn, he would have to keep silence, and he would have to exercise self-control, steadfastness, mm. justice, generosity, and truth, all of which I think were not terribly well expressed in royalty uh, in these, in these <laughs> right. times. So maybe after it was all translated, he was just really ticked off and... <laughs> So I'd go back to the Plato and the Socrates. <laughs> maybe, maybe. <laughs> we don't know. We don't know. <laughs> Another principle that Hermes wants to tell us about in the Corpus Hermeticum is that the soul can basically go wherever you imagine it to go in an instant. As McGregor Mathers says, believe that thou art there and thou art there. Exactly. Um, and that is to say that the universe basically is in the mind, okay? So that the mind is the translator of the universe. Does that make sense? Yeah, as above, so below. Yeah. And what's more is that your mind knows no boundaries. And what Hermes says is that to be able to know and to will and to hope is a straight and easy way to appropriate to each that will lead to the supreme good. So it is in the power of your mind to contemplate all of the supreme good and through discipline and through righteous living, you can appropriate those same qualities. So clearly, through these texts, uh, the power of the mind being so expanded, it seems only natural then that this tradition evolves to incorporate uh, the practice of, of magic and not only learning and knowing of these powers, but applying them. Yeah. But the question is then, why does not everyone have this power? Why are we not born with this realization that we can do this? Yeah. Because the author looked around himself and saw all these people living in ignorance of what is supposed to be a divine existence, right? You know, I said earlier that there were no parables. That's not true. Uh -huh. One really good parable is called the Crater Hermetis, or the Bowl of Hermes. Mm -hmm. And this vision is of a, of a great bowl filled with noose that God has created and put down. And God tells everybody to plunge into this bowl with the faith that they will rise to him that sent down the bowl. 
realizing why you came into being. But only some people heard that announcement. And those who did, they merged with the news, with the mind of God. Mm-hmm. And those who missed the proclamation, they had the word right. that we talked about in an earlier podcast, but they hadn't received the news. Oh. So in these hermetic texts, it's a way of of addressing the absence of that news and, and a path whereby we can claim it. That's right. And this idea of the bowl or the crater her- hermetis um, would later be the subject of an important book by the Gnostic writer Lodovico Lazzarelli, who uh, wrote a book with the same title in, I think, around the year 1700. That's interesting. Mm. We'll have to, maybe, perhaps we could put a, a link to that book on our site. Yeah. So clearly later authors and philosophers were very much inspired by this, by these texts, by this work. Uh, what other historical implications um, were brought about through this Corpus Hermeticum? Well, I think the role of the Corpus Hermeticum has been underplayed in the history of the Renaissance. If you remember Ficino that we mentioned in the beginning, who translated this work, his translation, his Latin translation of the Corpus Hermeticum was one of the first books to ever be printed after the Gutenberg Bible. Oh. And... It was first printed in 1471, and by the end of the 15th century, it would have been reprinted in 16 editions, and it was spread all over Europe, and it inspired so many mystics and writers and theologians and painters, and uh, some even say that this book was absolutely vital in sparking the renaissance it's so interesting that over time people today barely even have heard of these works if at all yet everybody knows of the renaissance everyone knows of the results that came about through the inspiration that was the corpus hermeticum yet today we've we've lost our memory of its importance and that's kind of sad hopefully we can uh, do our part through these podcasts to reawaken and renew that interest once again. The Corpus Hermeticum is a really interesting text, and it's just one of very many fundamental treatises on Hermeticism that shaped the world, and I hope we can get the opportunity to come back to them in later episodes. Well, Jason, I think it's clear that we've got our work cut out for us then. There, I think, there yeah, I is, think so. there's plenty to go over. Well, on that note, Jason, I think that it's time to go dive into a great big bowl of news. We hope to see you again next time. Thanks for joining us on Chasing Hermes. Visit our website at www.chasinghermes.com or send us an email at info at chasinghermes.com To inquire about the Western mystery tradition, please visit www.western-mysteries.com.